Good to see you all. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart, uh, leader of the church here. Very warm welcome to you. If you've got a Bible, can you go to Mark chapter 11? Mark chapter 11, we're going to be reading from that shortly. Um, I hope you've had a good coronation weekend thus far. We've still got a day off tomorrow for most people to come, which is great. Me and my family, we did yesterday. We watched the coronation and some of the procession. We had scones with jam and cream, and we had little sandwiches that have been cut into triangles and all had a very nice tea. It was a wonderful time. So hopefully you're enjoying that. I hope the weather holds, because I think there were street parties yesterday. I think there's some today. And there might even be some tomorrow as well. So I hope that uh, the weather holds for them if you're involved in them. All right. What we're getting into today is Mark's Gospel. We've been preaching through the whole of Mark's Gospel. And today we get to the beginning of chapter 11. And this is significant because Mark's Gospel as a whole, there's 16 chapters. It can be broken into three bits. The first part, chapters 1 to 8 and a little bit, is Jesus coming Um, in Galilee where he kind of grew up that area and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and he's performing miracles and healings and teaching and there's opposition he calls his disciples and so his ministry is there then in chapters rest of chapter 8 chapter 9 and chapter 10 Jesus is on the way it's a theme that comes up if you read that through that section and in that section we have Peter professing that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Messiah. We have the revelation of Jesus the Messiah on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he kind of glowing white with Moses and Elijah. Um, and then, but he also has three times where he tells his followers, his disciples, that I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And then three days later, I will rise. And it comes up three times, chapters 8, chapters 9, and chapters 10. So Jesus is preparing them for what is going to happen to him. And we've seen that there's been misunderstanding of that, and some of them have taken that, some of them haven't, some of them are still being very self-centered in their following of him. And then in chapter 11, we begin the final section of Mark's gospel. And this section takes place in Jerusalem. So we've had Galilee, We've gone on the way, and now he arrives in Jerusalem, the capital, the epicenter of the nation of Israel uh, at the time. So that's where it is. So all the things that Jesus has said, it's going to happen. We're now in the place that these are going to happen. And if you know the story, you know what's coming. But Mark has built it up for us as we've read through his gospel. So he's there into Jerusalem where he's going to be rejected, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and on three days later, he will rise. And so we've got uh, 25 verses we're going to read from the beginning of Mark. They should appear on the screen behind. Benjamin's there with the mic. Okay, off you go. Uh, Now when they drew, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, 
and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, the, um, those who went before, and those who followed were shouting, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Blessed is the com- blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, and as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in the leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. <clears throat> And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, thank you very much. All right, we've got some famous stories there. Jesus entering Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. We've got Jesus overturning the tables in the temple, which we know about. Famous story about Jesus. And then we've got Jesus on an anti-tree campaign, throwing what looks like a paddy, cursing trees. And then we've got a magic formula for prayer at the end that can get you anything, all right? So let's just work our way through this and find out what Mark has put this in here and why this is here. Big idea. Following Jesus means living a, a living relationship of prayer, not a dead religion of rituals. Following Jesus means a living relationship of prayer, not a dead religion of rituals. Okay, I'm going to go through this in three sections. We're going to look at the Lord comes to his temple, the Lord finds his temple barren, and then we're going to look at the purpose and the meaning and importance of prayer. All right, verses 1 to 11, the Lord comes to his temple. Chapters 11 to 16 in Mark take place in the last week of Jesus' life. They all take a um, center around Jerusalem, and the first sort of three chapters of that, 11, 12, and 13, are particularly focused on the temple, which was the religious center of the faith, the Jewish faith um, there at the time. And what Jesus is, uh, sorry, what Mark is doing and telling us about Jesus in this first section, he is hinting through all the references in the passage which we'll look at, 
that the Lord himself is coming to his temple because the temple was a place where they worshipped the Lord. That's where they did all the things we did in the book of Leviticus, festivals and sacrifices and the priests. That all took place at the temple where the Lord was worshipped, where his presence dwelt. And what we've got here is the Lord himself, the Messiah, Jesus, through the first 10 chapters of Mark, he's been laying that out, now comes to his temple. So the Lord is coming to the place where he is worshipped and we'll see what happens here. So it begins, it says, they drew near to Jerusalem and it mentions two villages that are nearby and they'll come up later. And it says, and the Mount of Olives. Why mentioning the Mount of Olives? The Mount of Olives was a mountain to the east of Jerusalem which is several hundred feet higher than Jerusalem. So from, from there you could look down onto the city of Jerusalem. And it is significant because in the Old Testament to Samuel, um, chapter 15, it was a place of worship where the Lord was worshipped. And who do we have standing on the Mount of Olives in this story? The Lord, who is to be worshipped. So he's standing there. Uh, in Ezekiel, he sees the presence of God leaving the temple and coming to rest on the Mount of Olives during um, when the, the, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. And so we have the presence of God is on the Mount of Olives. And who's standing on the Mount of Olives? Jesus. So we've got the worship of God is on this place. We've got the presence of God on this place. And according to Zechariah 14, this would be the place of final judgment where the Lord himself will judge the nations. And who's the one standing on the Mount of Olives? The judge of everything, the King of Kings, Jesus. And so they're building it up. And then what Jesus says, he says to these two unnamed disciples, go find me a colt, which is a young horse or donkey, which are in common. At the time, the donkeys would have been more common, so it's likely when he comes into Jerusalem, we talk about him riding on a donkey. And he says, go get it, bring it back to me, the master, all those kind of things. And the text gives no indication how Jesus knew that the donkey was there. There's nothing there we can surmise he's God. He might have had prior knowledge, but Mark doesn't give us room for that. That's not the point. What he is pointing to is the messianic connotations of it because the cult was identified in the Old Testament in Zechariah as the mount of the Messiah. So the fact that Jesus is going to ride on the cult is what the Messiah will do. The commandeering of a beast of burden um, was actually what kings were allowed to do in ancient times. So even his action of saying, go get me that donkey, bring it to me, is what a king is allowed to do. Because it's not his donkey, it's someone else's. But a king with authority say, I can use that for my purposes. And so even that, Mark is saying, we have a king returning here. So it's a donkey. And even um, a, a beast of burden, an unbroken beast of burden that is mentioned like a cult is actually considered sacred and is an appropriate ride for a king. And so even in the, the commandeering of the, the animal to ride on into Jerusalem, Mark is telling us the king is returning to his city. We've got the God on, who's on the mountain in his presence, but he's also a king and he's coming back to his city. And so they bring the cult to Jesus, he sits on it, and then we have this the, the famous kind of scene as he enters Jerusalem where there are cloaks on the road and they're waving leafy branches and they're saying things. And what they are is putting your cloaks on the road for a king to walk on. Oh, sorry, is something that you would do for a king. You wouldn't do that for anyone else. And so there's another reminder that the king is coming. Even the language they use, they say, Hosanna, which translated means save, I pray. And so they're basically shouting at Jesus, save us. Which again, Mark is reminding us, who are they talking to? The saviour of the world. There's another hint. Who is this who's come? Save, I pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a reference to Psalm 118. 
And it referred to pilgrims entering uh, the temple sanctuary, going to the temple, and then being blessed in God's name. So they're saying, save us, I pray, O blessed one. Save us, I pray, O blessed one. Mark is just piling them up. There's a reference to the father David, who was the greatest king in the history of Israel. And who do we know Jesus is? He's a descendant of David. He's in the line of kings. Is Jesus. So the king is coming back. The Lord is coming back. And then it says he entered Jerusalem. And where did he go? He went straight to the temple, the temple area. And then it says he looked around at everything. It was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the 12. Okay, so the focus of this passage is the temple. That's where Jesus was returning to. But it is a total and complete anticlimax. Where did the crowds go? There's all these people shouting and whooping and waving branches and laying cloaks on the ground. And he enters the temple as the king, as the Messiah, as God himself, and nothing. No one reacts. No one says, oh, he's here. (laughs) You know that one we're waiting for, that worshiping one? He's here. Doesn't happen. They missed it. Totally, totally missed it. The The crowd disperses as mysteriously as it appeared. Just gone. There's no confession of faith. There's no like, the Messiah has arrived and we will worship him, even in his temple. So when Jesus comes back to his house, people don't recognize him and he's all alone. That's what Mark's gearing up to. So that's the king has returned, the Lord has returned to his temple. Let's move on. Second bit, the Lord finds his temple barren. Now, we've got a sandwich here. We've found this several times in Mark in his narrative. He starts a story, he puts something in the middle, and then he finishes his story, and we're meant to look at them all together to find out why he's put that there and what the purpose is. We've got an ABA structure in this enacted parable, and it's about the temple because that's literally what Mark has just spoken about, and it's what he's going to speak about in in a moment in this story. So it begins with the barren tree. And I need to give you a lesson on horticulture right now, which, forgive me, my parents would be proud, but I had to look all this up because I don't know anything about plants other than how to kill them. So this is what happens. It begins at Bethany. So there's that thing that's a couple of miles outside Jerusalem. They're traveling in. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree. Lessons about fig trees. Hold on to this. The fig harvest is from mid-August to mid-October in the year where they, they, they sprout figs um, and then they bud again, but they remain undeveloped through the winter. These buds then swell into a small green fruit called pagim. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Hebrew word, in March and April. So you get these small green fruit, which are then followed by the leaves. Now, these small green fruit, they are edible, People do eat them. So you have the small fruit, you have the leaves, and then later when it rolls around to summer, those small fruit, they develop into the summer figs, which can be harvested. So what happens is it produces fruit before it produces leaves. So when Jesus looks at the tree, he sees green leaves. What's he expecting to find? Fruit. He's expecting to find fruit on the tree. And as he's hungry... And he looks at the tree and says, oh, the tree's got leaves on it. It must have fruit. Therefore, I can have something to eat. What does he find when he gets to the tree? There's no fruit. There's no fruit. And so then he curses the tree. He says, no one's going to eat fruit from you again because it's got the 
it's got the perception of fruitfulness with all the leaves, but the reality is there's nothing. There's nothing there. It's not doing what it should have been doing. And so Jesus' cursing of the figs is based on the fact that the tree did not contain any figs, neither the fully ripe summer figs as expected, but also the early unripe figs. There was no fruit on the tree. Okay? And what has Mark just been talking about? The temple. So we've got the temple where he goes in where he's not recognized. Immediately we have a fig tree with no fruit. And we know from the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, and Michael, all use the image of the fig tree for God's judgment. So it's a dun-dun-dun. Something's coming, and it's not good. Because Jesus has gone to his temple. He hasn't even been acknowledged there. He's now we've got the fig tree, which is a sign of judgment, that should have fruit on it, because it looks like it should. It's all, all the nice stuff's in place. But there's nothing there, and therefore he curses it. He curses the tree. So this, this tree had all the promise of fruit, yet it is deceptive. Then we move to verses 15 to 19. So we now, we've had a barren tree, and now we've got a barren temple. He comes to the temple courtyard. Now, a little bit on the temple. This, at this point, it would have been Herod's temple, which was the third temple after Solomon and Zerubbabel's temple. Um, and the construction was still going. It had been going on for many years, about 20 BC, they reckon they started. And it wasn't finished, but it was a massive, impressive structure. What Herod was, was he was a builder. He was a thoroughly evil human being as well, but he was a builder. And he built this impressive temple. The, the temple courtyard was about 35 acres and there was the place of the sacrifice and the worship and the priests and the festivals. And that would here, and you had the temple in the middle with the Holy of Holies and the most holy, uh, uh, the holy place and the most holy place. We did this in the book of Leviticus based on the tabernacle. And then outside you had the, the courts where the Jewish men could go. And then outside of that was the courts where the Jewish women could go. And then outside of that was the court of the Gentiles, which was for everybody else who wasn't an ethnic Jew who could go and worship the Lord. And it was a monstrous affair. Josephus, uh, a few years later, um, wrote that at the dedication of the temple, for when they had the Passover festival, he reckoned there were 255,000 lambs sacrificed for the Passover festival. This is massive, massive affair of what's going on there. But then Jesus goes and he enters the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer area of the court, um, uh, the temple sort of uh, precinct and structure where it was. And what he found there was it was a stock market of animal dealers and money changers. People would travel to Jerusalem to make the sacrifices. There they would then purchase an animal to be sacrificed. But to purchase the animal, they had to change their coinage to the currency, the temple currency. So they had to change their coins to buy the animal to then worship the Lord in sacrifice. And what, what, what was happening was the priests and those ruling it were basically selling the animals at a markup so they were more expensive. And even in the changing of the money, there was a markup on that. And so there was a racket going on in the worship of God where they were, forgive me, but screwing God's people out of money so they could worship the Lord. And Jesus comes into his temple and he sees it and he's like, I am not having this. How dare you do this to my father's house? And he starts flipping tables 
and, and basically making a scene and saying, this is not how it should be. He said, it should be my house should be a house of prayer for all nations. All nations basically meant the Gentiles. It meant those outside the ethnic covenant community of God's people, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. So actually it's here for prayer for all the other people. And if you were a worshiper of God but you weren't an ethnic Jew, the only place you could go was to the court of the Gentiles. And it's full of money changes and people trying to fleece you. And Jesus says, I am not having that. It was a common thinking at the time that when the Messiah came, because of the Roman occupation, they thought the Messiah was going to come and purge the temples of the Gentiles and get them out. Jesus does the total opposite. He's purging the temple so they can come in. And saying, actually, this is a prayer for prayer for all the nations. They should be allowed to come in and worship the living God. Because he's not just the God of Israel, he's the God of everyone and everything. And Jesus is saying, I want that to happen. I'm not happy the way it is, but the temple authorities, who are on to a good deal and making lots of money, don't like it. They hear about it, wind of it. I mean, obviously, it's pretty public what he's doing. And they decide they want to, it says, destroy him. And remember all the things that Jesus said about what's going to happen to him. And so it's beginning here. They have decided they want to get rid of this preacher from Galilee who is coming and causing a ruckus and affecting their bottom line. And he's saying, no, I won't have that. This is not what the temple should be doing. And then what we have in the final part of the sandwich, verses 20 and 21, is we have a withered fig tree and a withered temple. And so as they go back, as they pass by the same fig tree, they find it completely withered. And Peter points out, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And so if we put it all together, what we got? We've got Jesus coming to his temple triumphantly. He is the Lord and he's returning to his temple. And then we find that the temple is just like the fig tree. It looks great. It's all there, the outside's there, everything's functioning, but actually there is no fruit. And Jesus is pronouncing judgment on it. It's empty, religious rituals with no substance, and he's saying, no, that will not happen, that will not last. And we know in just a matter of years, AD 70, Jerusalem and the temple is leveled brutally by the Roman authorities. So Jesus' judgment on the temple is saying, actually, that's not going to last because it's not bearing fruit. It's not doing what it should be doing. But actually, what Jesus is also doing is counting judgment on the temple, but he's also replacing the temple. Because who is the new temple where the presence of God dwells? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's calm. He is God with us. You don't need to go to a temple to pray. You go to Jesus. And then that becomes his bride, his body, the church. And so actually Jesus is saying there is a a temple for all nations found in me and manifested through my church to everyone. And that is where I will be working. That is where the fruit will be born. That is where lives will be transformed. And so then we come to that third and final bit the importance of prayer. And Mark's arranged his material to lead us from one to the other. There's no break. We've had 
the triumphal entry, temple. We've had this enacted parable of the withered tree, which then we put alongside the temple and say, the temple's not right. And then Jesus is pointing back to himself, so I'm the one. And then we suddenly get the importance of prayer. So Peter's going, look, the tree's withered. And Jesus is saying, look to me. Have faith in God. And he underlines it with, truly I say to you. And then we get this credible section here where Jesus is talking about prayer. And bear in mind, he's just said that the house of prayer isn't working. So there's no prayer there for the Gentiles. And so actually, he's talking about prayer. So prayer is important. We don't reject that. And he's bringing it back to himself, saying, I tell you the truth. And he's talking about two things. He talks about faith and he talks about forgiveness. He talks about faith and forgiveness. And he's talking about moving mountains, which is a ridiculous, impossible act, but it is used to illustrate what can be achieved through prayer. No one would actually want to move a mountain because if you move a mountain, it's going to cause lots of devastation and destruction, and wherever you put it isn't going to go well for the people who are there. But the idea is the mountain representing something so big, but it can be moved in prayer if we are men and women of faith. And Jesus is saying the temple is not your object of faith. I am. Jesus is the one we look to and put our faith and trust in. And he says, you're not to doubt. You're to believe in me. And the doubt would come because we know what's happening in just a few chapters' time. And Jesus is already prepared for them. Jesus is going to get rejected. He's going to suffer. And he's going to be brutally murdered. He says, don't doubt. Trust in me. Don't worry about the circumstances. Don't worry about what you see. I am the object. I'm the one. Because three days later, he says, I'm going to rise which is going to be hard to believe when you're going through all the difficulty and seeing all the the pain and sorrow that's going to come. But he's saying, actually, you cannot doubt, you can believe and trust in me. And then there's this staggering thing that says, you know, whatever you ask in my name, believe you receive it and it will be yours. So is is this the genie from Aladdin? If I rub, I get what I want. You should be quicker on that one. No. It's absolutely not what Jesus is saying because there are qualifiers in Scripture. Uh, uh, 1 John 5 says that um, uh, if we ask anything in accordance to his will, he hears us. So we've got to to ask according to his will, and his will is in line with his character, who he is, who God is, his very essence, his merciful, gracious, loving character. We ask in that. James 4 says you ask and you don't get because you ask wrongly because you want to spend it on your passions. So when you ask in prayer selfishly, course you're not going to get it because you're just you want you know you want the Ferrari or the Aston Martin or whatever it is and God's just like no nah, because this you know that's what it is he says no and also there's even a qualifier in the language here where Jesus uses whatever and you say well whatever means whatever but actually whatever doesn't always mean whatever in the same way everyone doesn't always mean everyone there are qualifiers on that you ever been in a team meeting when someone says everyone here and someone goes yep and then the smart Alec goes no the king of England's not here and you're like, that's not what I meant. Is everyone from the team here? You know, there's even a qualifier on the word. I remember being in a buffet and I was with the kids doing this. And Mel says, Do you want me to get me? What do you want from the buffet? I said, I'll just get whatever. What, what do you think I meant? Her to come back with just a pile of grass clippings and a shoe and say, There you go. You did say whatever. No, no, I meant whatever was on the buffet table. 
And so there's, there's qualifiers in that. So what, Je- what Jesus is saying is actually if we pray, if we ask according to God's will, if we are lined up with him, we have faith and trust in him, he can do incredible things. If we're not praying selfishly, if we're not praying um, for our own needs and our own things, we line up with him and we cry out to him. And there are deep waters there, which we haven't got time to go into all of it, but there's the essence. What we can ask for God in prayer and believe and know he will do is what the Bible tells us we can. We can pray to God for salvation and know he will receive it. Because the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be, they can take that to the bank. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we uh, confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us. So there's salvation, there's forgiveness. It says you can seek the kingdom. If you seek the kingdom of God first, he will add everything else to you, everything you need. So your needs, not your greeds, will be provided through God when you seek first his kingdom. God also says that I will work all things for good. So whatever mess you're in, whatever mess you're facing, ultimately God will work it out for his good, your good and his glory. Those things you can take to the bank. The second thing he talks about is forgiveness which just echoes the character of God. It echoes the Lord's prayer that we're familiar with. And actually, if we're going to be people who pray in faith, we also need to be people who forgive. And a relationship with Jesus is characterized by those two things, faith in him and who he is and what he's done, but also forgiveness that we receive from God for our sin, but also then we pass on to others. The sign of someone who has heart has been transformed by Jesus is that they are willing to forgive because they recognize what's happened in their life. And that's not an easy thing, and there's, there's lots to that, but there is an essence there. So Jesus is saying the temple, although it looks great, is withered and ultimately is going to pass away. We know that from history. And he said, actually, I'm it. I'm the one you should come to. The presence of God dwells in me, and we come to him in faith. We come to him in prayer. And we speak to him. So let's finish this up with a little bit of application and then we'll worship to finish. A couple of diagnostic questions for you. Just to you know, get this, try and get this under your skin as we finish. First one, why do you come to church? What is your reason for coming here to real life church? Is it habit? Is it, I've got nothing better to do on a Sunday morning? Is it because of the fantastic music? the great kids' work and youth work? Is it see some friendly faces? Is it the scones with jam and cream? Is it the awesome preaching? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is it the buzz here? Is your name on a rotor? And think, well, I've got to, I've got to go because my name's on the right. Is it because, like me, you get paid to be here? None of those things are necessarily inherently wrong. But if they are the reason that you're here, you're in danger of being like the fig tree where it's just empty rules and rituals that you're just following and it is devoid of faith in Jesus Christ. Because the reason we're here, the reason we're part of this underlying everything is because of what God has done in our lives who he is and we come to church because we have been born again into a new community and a new family with God as our father 
We respond to Jesus' death and resurrection in gratitude and worship. And in our repentance, we receive his forgiveness as we put our faith and trust in him. And then we seek to walk with him day by day. And we join others who are just as broken and damaged as us. And we walk together in the grace of God. And we seek to minister to a hurting, broken world and proclaim the good news of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. And if it's based on anything else, you're in danger of becoming like the fig tree that ends up cursed and withered and under God's judgment. We don't have to come to church. We get to. We get to be part of this community. And we express it in meetings, but we also express it in community life. We live together. It's all of that. But why are you here? Why are you a part of it? And I want to challenge you, because I know even for me, as I was preparing this, I realized that actually I have to dig down into some of my own motives. Because as the pastor, I, ha- I have to be here in that sense. And actually, I've got to, I have to repent of my own mechanical rituals and my own indifference to actually what I'm actually coming to and what I'm actually a part of. And I had to repent and say, God, save me from legalism. Save me from going through the motions. Save me from just doing it because that's what I've always done. Save me from doing it from being seen and wanting people to think well of me. Save me from just trying to do a good job and turn me back to you to say, God, I respond to you because I love you because you've saved me and I'm so thankful I get to be a part of this family. Second question. How are you doing with your relationship with Jesus in prayer? How are you doing with your relationship with Jesus in prayer? Jesus' response to this barren temple was to talk about prayer, talk about relationship with him. That is what we are to do. We are to pursue him in prayer. We can do this personally. We talk throughout the day. To him, you might start with a devotion in the morning. We do it in our small groups. It's part of our structure. You eat, you talk, you pray. Every week, that's what we do, have an opportunity to pray. We have our gathering as a church. We do church at prayer where we join with others in the family and we pray together. We even pray here this morning on a Sunday, which we've done and we'll do again in just a moment. And so what I want to ask you, I want to challenge you, are you going to respond to Jesus in prayer? Not because you have to, not because you're going through a, a motion, but actually out of desire and relationship. You have friends you might have children, spouse. You talk to them. You have relationship with them. You don't think every time you go, I've got to do it. You get to do it because they're part of your family. They're part of your friendship network. And Jesus is the same. And so why do you want to, the band come up, do you want to stand? I want to just lead us in a moment here for us all to get, do some business with our Lord. Because there's a sense we've gathered here today as God's people and the Lord has come amongst us by his spirit as he promised to be there when we gather together. And so the Lord has come to his temple today and he's here with us by his spirit. And we have an opportunity now and you have a decision to make. Are you going to respond in faith? Are you going to respond to him now personally? Are you going to cry out to him? And I think there's not going to be an opportunity, just a moment of silence, where you can do some business with the Lord. If you know there's some repentance you need to do, which means turning around, going the other way, of your attitude 
to how you've been kind of engaging with God's people, do it now. Get right with him. Just speak to him. He will forgive you. You can take that to the bank. That mountain can move. But actually, are there times when you need to, are there things you need to put your trust and faith in? When was the last time you actually had a, just a chat with God? Now's an opportunity to do it. And then we're going to sing and you can do it there as well. So I'm just going to pray. You guys have a little bit of a moment and then the band are going to lead us in something. All right? Lord God, we want to thank you that you came. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are the presence of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Lord. We thank you that we are part of your people. We've been scooped up into your body, the church. Lord God, we are so grateful and we are so thankful for that. Lord God, we say we love you and we praise you. Lord, we ask you forgive us where we have treated that shabbily poorly. We've just gone through the motions. Forgive us for empty rituals, Lord God, devoid of faith and love. Lord, we repent of our sin before you and ask you to forgive us for that, Lord Jesus. We come back to you and say, God, fill us with your spirit now that we might know your presence. Lord Jesus, maybe you just want to take a moment in the silence, pray, and then the band will start.